This is the Foundation for Government Accountability's Built to Win podcast. Today, I have Madeline Melissa, a senior fellow at the Foundation for Government Accountability with me to discuss one of the most censored topics of 2021, election integrity. Prior to joining FGA, Madeline served as chief counsel to Governor Paul LePage in the state of Maine. She started her career in private practice as a civil litigator. Thanks for joining us today, Madeline. Thank you very much for having me, Kristen. I'm excited and looking forward to our conversation. Awesome. The 2020 election was unlike any other, with a hyper-polarized electorate, a global pandemic, and changes to the voting system that were fast-tracked by government officials without legislative oversight. Many voters found themselves questioning the ethics and legality behind these strategies. Others were confused by third-party financial involvement in the election process and unsolicited absentee ballot pushes. A lack of transparency and security caused voters to lose confidence. In the wake of the 2020 election, State legislatures across the country recognize the need to protect the integrity of future elections. State lawmakers work to identify the problems and craft common sense solutions. In 2021, 14 states enacted policies to address many of these problems. While there are still areas of improvement, a lot has been accomplished by state legislatures that want to protect our country's democratic process without encroaching on its accessibility to voters. Madeline, can you break down some of these reforms that came out of the 2021 legislative session and help us understand what led us to the creation of some of these election reforms? That's a great question, Kristen, because state lawmakers have been very busy this session across the country, and they're working hard to restore voter confidence in the election processes in their states. And as we know, if confidence drops, participation drops, and that's the cornerstone of our democracy. So really, when people, when they don't trust the process, They don't trust the outcome, and they don't trust their elected officials. So as you mentioned, in 2021, 14 states across the country enacted a total of 66 reforms. And I'd like to highlight a few of these important changes. So let's start with a favorite topic of mine, ballot harvesting. So for your listeners who don't know what ballot harvesting is, it's the practice of a third party distributing a ballot application or a ballot and then gathering and submitting the completed applications or ballots. So a third-party organization will send out a mass application for vote by mail, oftentimes with incorrect voter information, or they might hand, a voter might hand their ballots to a stranger. And that oftentimes is a stranger with a political agenda. So they have no idea if their ballot actually makes it to the precinct to be counted, or if it actually reflects their vote. And ballot harvesting, this practice, it opens the door to political campaigns or other groups who really have a stake in the election and the outcome of the election. You know, they tamper with, discard, or coerce voters. So let me just give your listeners a couple of examples of ballot harvesting and how it's affected elections. Back in 2019, a ballot harvesting scandal was so bad that it actually overturned North Carolina's 9th Congressional District. There, a political operative had actually paid a network of people to collect voted ballots, turn them over to him, and he altered them before submitting them. And then in 2020, a nonprofit group in Virginia sent out half a million absentee voter applications with incorrect voter information on them. So just imagine, if you're a voter in Virginia and you get one of those applications, how confusing is that? First of all, you were planning to vote on election day, right? So Why is this absentee application coming to you? But it looks official, but your name is spelled incorrectly. I had this happen to me here in Maine. And does that mean you have to vote absentee? How do you correct errors? I mean, that's a clerk's administrative nightmare too. 
So this practice has been prevalent across the country, and it's hugely problematic. Yeah, I definitely understand that. I actually voted in Virginia, and I was most likely one of those people that received the absentee application. My confusion didn't have to do with that. I still went in and and voted in person. But where my confusion did come into play was I checked my ballot registration and status online, and I saw that I had voted. I was labeled as an absentee voter. And uh, I was really confused. You know, I called the Virginia Elections Board representative a few times, actually. I feel kind of bad for them. And they really couldn't explain to me why my ballot was labeled that way. They said it, you know, the convenient, it was a glitch and it would be corrected. I'm still confused today about why my ballot was labeled that way. Again, I went in person, but I'm definitely relieved to see states taking these concerns under consideration and taking them seriously. So can you tell us what have states done to restore confidence in the absentee ballot process? Thanks for that example, because you know, that's just one example, your example or my example. And this has happened across the country. I mean, who's sending out these applications and then who's handling the ballots on the other end. So it's an issue that states have started to address. And what they've done is they've passed laws to limit, first of all, who can actually handle the ballots and turn them in, right? So the laws narrow the category of people to people that, you know, a voter would actually trust, such as a family member, household member, a caregiver, And also limits how many people or how many ballots a person can actually handle. So you can't have, you know, 500,000 ballots or 250 ballots in the back of your car as you're driving around a neighborhood. I mean, you have no way of knowing if it actually ever reaches the precinct. So states have done that. And they also have started to prohibit third parties from sending out pre-filled absentee applications. So that was what I was discussing in Virginia, where they have incorrect voter information or just prohibiting them altogether. And Florida, Georgia, Texas, and Iowa all recently enacted ballot harvesting legislation to address this issue and stop it from happening in future elections. It's great to see that elected officials are really listening to these concerns. Like I said, I mean, I not only called my Virginia election board representative, but I called my representative and my senator. I wanted to make sure that my concerns were heard And it's great to see that a lot of states are really listening to those people that put them in office in the first place and are trying to restore voters' confidence. Can you tell me a little bit more, what else are states doing or have they done to restore voter confidence? Yeah, you know, another big issue that became acute in 2020, like never before, due to the rise of absentee voters, was drop boxes. You know, before 2020, drop boxes were post office boxes, right? And they also went to voting locations. But in 2020, drop boxes were placed all over the country and many times in unsecured locations without surveillance or tamper-proof measures in place or even measures to deal with weather. And so nobody checked ID. There were no rules about how to empty the ballot boxes. And nobody knew if ballot boxes had been tampered with. That's hugely, hugely problematic. So states across the country, first of all, they banned drop boxes as the need for them is faded. And then other states have put in requirements like only allowing drop boxes to be located in government offices or places like an early election center, those buildings that actually already have 24-7 surveillance. And additionally, many states also don't have ID requirements for absentee ballots like they do in person. So what's problematic here is that voters who vote in person on election day, they show an ID, which is more secure to begin with. 
But the rise of absentee ballots, there are a lot of voters who vote by mail and they don't have to include any version of an ID, meaning that those ballots were dropped into the postal box or drop boxes and they had no security measures. So quite a few states are looking to do this. And Georgia just recently passed a requirement that voters must show a state ID or a driver's license number or social security. And they put that number, it's not photo ID, but it's a number on their absentee ballot. So this creates uniformity in the process, right? So if you're voting absentee and you're voting in person, it's the same process. But also it increases the verification for absentee voters that they actually are who they say they are and has accurate identification. ID requirements are very interesting. Can you speak a little bit more to first-time voters? Because I understand that there's these ID requirements for absentee ballots, but like just to register to vote, what does that look like? Yeah, it's a good question. So thanks to the recent expansion of absentee ballots, in some states, it's actually possible for someone to register to vote, request an absentee ballot, and then vote absentee without ever being seen in person or producing a photo ID. So that, again, that's a really big problem, right? Because the purpose of voter IDs laws is to ensure that a person is who they claim to be. So if you live in a state or you move to a state where you can actually go through this process without ever showing an ID, there's no proof that you are who you say you are. Man, that's scary. I'm really glad that people are starting to really take a look at these ID laws and, and kind of understand where the loopholes might lie. Thanks for that. I think something people often forget is the human aspect of securing elections and that there are people that are also verifying this voter information, which is why it's so important that we're, we're making laws that take care of them and set them up for success, you know, make their lives a little bit easier. And ID requirements really just allow that to just be way easier for them. Now, going a slightly different direction with election reforms, I'd like to discuss the use of private funding for the administration of elections, which was both new and rampant in the 2020 election with the Chan Zuckerberg initiative donating $400 million to fund election activities in states across the country. Given the increase in third-party involvement in the 2020 election, can you explain some of the ways that state legislatures are attempting to limit the financial involvement of third parties and outside groups? Yeah, it's a really good question, and it is just really started to be in the media. We FGA had a piece in the Wall Street Journal recently that was really good that your listeners should read exposing a lot of this issue. Because third-party funding of state elections, what it does is it effectively allows private individuals to influence winners and losers in elections. And it shouldn't be a partisan issue because no billionaire, whether it's Mark Zuckerberg or any other conservative billionaire, it doesn't matter which side of the aisle they're on. They should not have the ability to spend hundreds of millions of dollars and to achieve a partisan outcome in whatever jurisdiction they pick. And the money, just to clarify for your listeners, it was not spent in the traditional method of a campaign contribution or for advocacy purposes. It was spent on the actual administration of elections. It's never happened before 2020, and it should never happen again. So to give your listeners a little background, as you said, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative donated $400 million to fund election activities. This was during 2020. Most of the funds, which are colloquially known as Zuckerbucks, were provided to the Center for Tech and Civic Life. It's a left-leaning nonprofit. And at FGA, we gathered public records requests. And through those records requests, we learned that the funds were distributed to 47 states, 2,500 counties, and D.C. And 
They were labeled as grants as a way of ensuring, quote unquote, safe and reliable voting amid the pandemic. But what we found out was that really a fraction of the money was spent on PPE or hiring election staff. And there was, of course, no mechanism for oversight or accountability or transparency. We had a nonprofit picking which jurisdictions got money, how much money they got, and then it was up to the jurisdiction to spend it on whatever they wanted to spend it on. Man, you know, as a former federal employee, I mean, I couldn't even accept $20 worth of gifts <laughs> without <laughs> submitting it to the ethics office. So the lack of oversight is astounding. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what that money was spent on, if not on health-related issues? Yeah, well, let me give you a couple of examples across the country. So in Missouri, first of all, counties that broke for Trump in 2020, less than half of them received Zuckerbucks. And by comparison, 100% of the counties that voted for Clinton in 2016 and Biden in 2020 received Zuckerbucks. And in liberal Boone County, Missouri, the money paid for radio spots that featured rappers as part of a voter information drive. And in Wisconsin, in some of the largest cities in Wisconsin, which trend Democratic, the funds paid for get out the vote efforts. And in Pennsylvania, another really important key battleground state, particular Chester County, the grants funded everything from mailers to registered voters to online voter registration drives. Pennsylvania, as a state, as a whole, spent less than 10% of its grant money on health-related expenses. Man, <laughs> I'm really failing to understand, like, maybe there was a lyric in there from a, a rapper that was explaining how to vote while remaining that six feet distance apart. I, I don't know. Get out to vote efforts in rapper campaigns. That doesn't seem health-related at all. <laughs> what have states done to better regulate this kind of private election funding? Well, I've got to say states have really, they've stepped up to the plate. They've recognized how incredibly problematic this is. And just in this last session, 11 states have banned or severely restricted private funding for the administration of elections. So this includes states like Arizona, Florida, Ohio, Texas, all across the country. And several state legislatures passed bans that were vetoed, unfortunately, by Democrat governors. So most recently, that was Governor Cooper in North Carolina, but also Louisiana, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. So just to take this one step further, imagine private funding of more police stops, but only in certain neighborhoods, or private funding for tax departments to conduct more audits on a certain type of business, or in a certain zip code, or of a certain political persuasion. Elections should be safeguarded from this type of outside influence period. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that would be a hit news story on some of our favorite news networks. Lots of commentators would be having a field day. Thanks for taking us on a deeper dive of that. I totally understand that there has been lots of talk around this, and a lot of it has been controversial, including President Biden's recent statement claiming that reform efforts by states were an unrelenting assault on the rights to vote, with many others describing it as the Republicans promoting an effort to influence future elections. You've been on the ground in many of these states to observe the election reform process. How would you summarize the goals for implementing reforms such as these? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, I've testified on election reforms across the country, and I've had the pleasure of meeting with lawmakers, voters, elected officials, you know, from Ohio, Wisconsin, Missouri, Florida, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, all over the, all over the country. And one thing I've noticed is that there's a common denominator 
And that is that voters want to know when they're voting. It's a free, fair, and valid election. And lawmakers have recognized this, and their goal is to improve election integrity. So that's why, as a lot of the reforms we've talked about today are aimed at increasing security, accountability, and transparency. Because voters support closing the loopholes in election laws, they overwhelmingly support voter ID, and they recognize that if there's a fraudulent vote, a valid voter is disenfranchised in the process. Yeah. No, definitely. It's almost like having trust issues with the democratic process. And and it's good to see that these states are are really, again, just taking a good amount of effort and time to restore that confidence. So I guess my confusion then is why is there this push by so many Washington-based leaders, including the Biden administration, to uh, federalize elections? Yeah. So let me step back and say, first of all, in Article 1, Section 4 of the Constitution— It gives the states the authority to determine the times, places, and manners of holding elections. So constitutionally, that's how our federalist system works. And it works for a good reason. Because state legislators across the country have election committees, right? This is not something new. Every state legislature has an election committee, usually one on both, you know, each chamber. And local lawmakers regularly pass bills to address loopholes or improve their processes as they see fit for the needs of their voters, their constituents, and their states. This is not a novel concept. There were more things that came up in 2020 that need to be addressed. But year over year, state lawmakers, you know, in these election committees, passed laws to improve the integrity of elections. And Democrats are now pushing for federalizing elections. And I'll mention not a single Republican has voted for any of the failed federal election bills. And it seems to me that Democrats want to change the voting system to guarantee results that they can't achieve otherwise at the ballot box through the voters. And what this would do would mean that D.C. bureaucrats would make the rules at the expense of state and local control over elections. And I'll just say, D.C. does not know how to run elections where I live in Maine or where you live in Virginia or in any other state for that matter. Washington bureaucrats, they should not have oversight over how local elections are run. I mean, everything from deciding to eliminate voter ID requirements to where polling locations are placed, federalizing elections, it's frankly an unconstitutional power grab. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I've lived in a few different states and I am astounded by how different Virginia is from D.C. I mean, they're neighboring borders. So we have a few minutes left. I need to ask, are there any areas that are still in need of solutions and Basically, what have states not done? Yeah, other than continuing to pass some of the reforms that we've talked about, I would urge state lawmakers to push back on D.C.'s attempts at overriding their authority to run their own elections in their states. And they can do this by passing bills that require legislative approval to implement any new federal guidance or accept any new funding related to elections. The legislatures in the states ought to have a say in approval on guidance or funding. And I'd also, I think lawmakers should really consider requiring their state agencies to notify the legislature and the governor when they receive communications from the DOJ or any other federal agency for that matter regarding elections. Because then you don't have DC bureaucrats communicating with state bureaucrats about elections without full transparency to both the governor and the legislature. I'd also note that there is a new type of ballot harvesting that arose in 2020 
and it should be banned. And that is the type that's performed by government officials. So, for example, in Michigan, the Secretary of State, this is in 2020, sent all 7.7 million registered voters absentee ballot applications. And Nevada did the same with ballots. And so this causes widespread voter confusion, right? Because if you get something from the government that says here, apply to vote absentee, well, can you vote in person? Do you have to vote absentee? I mean, it's hugely problematic. So really the bottom line is that only government officials should send absentee and vote by mail applications, but only when voters request them. And so states should really consider passing that reform. And finally, I'll just, I'll note that states should really consider a election observer bill of rights. Wisconsin did pass one last session. Unfortunately, it was vetoed by their Democratic governor. But in 2020, election observers were denied or provided really limited access to election activities. So for example, in Pennsylvania, election observers were actually fenced off. I mean, physical fences 15 to 18 feet away from election activities. So here's a novel concept. Election observers need to be able to observe, right? So they need to be near enough to hear and to see the process in a meaningful way. And this doesn't just include election day, but the whole process, right? From the machine testing, ballot counting, absentee ballots, recounts, all parts of the process. And those election observer rights, they should be spelled out in law. So it's clear, like you said, the human factor, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody who's actually running an election, an election official knows, okay, here are the things that election observers are allowed to do on election day. So there's no confusion and people can't unilaterally make a decision about how to change the laws. No, that's so true. And and thank you for taking it back to that, that human aspect, because at the end of the day, you know, that's who the election process is serving and that's who serves on the election process. So Those are some great reforms. Thank you so much for walking us through what has and has not been done. Really, really broke down like the leaps and bounds of progress that we've made in 2021. Madeline, thank you so much for your time. We're looking forward to checking back in with you as more states implement reforms that ensure secure and fair elections. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. And I'll just say in conclusion here that voters must have confidence in the process in order to trust the results and the leaders that are elected. And that's why these state election integrity reforms are so important to the future of our democracy. Absolutely. You've been listening to the Foundation for Government Accountability Built to Win podcast. This is Kristen Eichhammer. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for listening to Built to Win, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the Foundation for Government Accountability, a nonprofit organization helping millions achieve the American dream. To learn more about our work or our experts, visit www.thefga.org and tell us what you think on Twitter at Built to Win Podcast. Views and opinions expressed by guests on Built to Win do not necessarily reflect the official position of the Foundation for Government Accountability and are not intended to advocate for or against the passage of any legislation or ballot initiative or to support or oppose any candidate for elected office. 